Hi everyone, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to our podcast Books and Beyond with Bound season 4 where we speak to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. Yes, and we are editors, podcasters and storytellers and through Bound we help you create stories and put them out into the world. So our guest today is one of those few Indian American writers who have made it big, right? Um it's the one and only Amitava Kumar. He is an author and the creative writing teacher at Vassar College. Yes, and you know this has always been my dream, Tara, because as a migrant, I love how most of his characters are actually migrants like himself. So we will be dissecting his most latest books, a blue book and a time outside this time. Yeah and you know what I really loved about these two books is that they are sort of companion books and we're going to be explaining a little bit more about what that means in the episode but basically one book led to another and the blue book is actually kind of his journal which then becomes material for his novel um and here's a fun fact I actually studied in Vassar College uh, for a year before transferring out Yeah I mean you actually missed him Tara but it's okay you can catch up today on our conversation yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we'll be finding out about his chi- how his childhood experiences inform his writing, which I always find very you and I both find very interesting, right, Michelle? And also his relationship with writing residencies. And the most interesting part is that he manages to take these very real experiences of his life and tweak them in his novels. So it's sort of a hyper realism in a way, where uh, every moment of his life he takes it and he. I I'm not, I can't explain. Yeah. Can you explain it? Yeah, no just say it's yeah, okay. Yeah, I really like that part Tara because you know he he um adopts this hyper realism technique where you know everything is kind of exactly like his life but not exactly like it, right? Um only he knows the changes that he makes and I find that very fascinating. It is, it is. Um and before that uh you know and we had so many fans also write to us to feature him so we're doing that. um and as i mentioned last time there is so much content out there and we know how difficult it is to put that content out into the world and that's why we offer various book marketing services for the books we really love and believe in because we really want to start conversations that cut through the noise so if you have a book that you want us to help you reach the right audiences with then please find more details in our show notes and we'll be very happy to connect Yes and for now let's travel to Amitava's world. So hi Amitava welcome to Books and Beyond. We are so thank happy you, to thank have you. you here. Uh I've been waiting for this so I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah no and actually you know I've always wanted to speak to you Amitava because you know your work focuses on your life as an immigrant and I could totally relate because you know I was born and raised in the Gulf and I really couldn't uh, find a lot of work um you know by immigrants and and i've just been waiting for this like since forever so yeah i'm yeah. very excited yeah me too and 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 i'm also excited that you're a professor at vaso um <laughs> and i was there for a year before i transferred so i wish i could have taken uh one of your classes there but anyway my loss <laughs> <laughs> okay so the the episode is going to have three sections so the first okay. section we're going to be covering uh a bit about um, your your books your writing career your process all of those things and then mm-hmm. we have a reading recommendation section um okay. and then we have the signature rapid fire round <laughs> so okay let's yes. begin Yeah so you know Amitabha your latest book um, which is a time outside this time and a blue book both of these are actually companions for each other right uh, we See. know that your novel deals with fake news pandemic and also your life as a writer and the blue book is a journal a beautiful journal with been so much artwork and so much text in it and that actually became a basis for your novel right so you know mm-hmm. i have rarely found books that i would say are like twin uh, companions and and that rarely get the writer's process done so well um so can you tell us more about how keeping that diary which became the blue book helped you in writing your novel eventually yeah i had thought that if i was going to talk about the news 
I should do something which engages the news on a daily basis. Let's remember that the word journalism comes, I mean, the root word for journal is the day, the day, the day, you know? So it's the daily idea, the idea of the daily engagement. And so I was quite determined to keep a journal. And that journal, I was going to um, primarily do writing and then have clippings. But then the pandemic made it necessary, you know, have children, I have two children and one is quite young. And I was thinking, maybe I could try to have him paint, do a drawing. And that actually then became our daily routine. And um, that's how uh, it somehow grew into more of an obsession or a habit for me. And I was just keeping track on the news what was happening, how were rumors advancing, what was happening, even about the disease itself. And just by keeping track of that, by keeping and maintaining a daily journal, I was actually seeing how my novel's idea of a man with his family during lockdown, making sense of things, uh, it just grew organically out of it. So you're quite right to point out that the two books seem to be, you know, participating in some sort of a Jugal Bandi of sorts. And that's very interesting. I never knew that uh, where the word journal comes from. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, and I also like that I found it very interesting that a lot of, you know, this writing process that you speak about happens in these residencies. And both the books have so many interesting insights. Um, and that was really fascinating. Also coming from our perspective, because we own a writing retreat. Um, oh, I, so, see, I see. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a, it used to be a biannual writing retreat before COVID, and we yet have to uh, organize one now that things are settling down a little bit. So, what is I wanted to ask you? What is an unpopular opinion you have about writing residencies? What really interests me is that often, in some places, for example, at the McDowell writing retreat at the writing colony, uh, the, when you go into your room. It has these uh, wooden boards over the mantelpiece. Uh, they can accommodate about 12, 15, 20 names. And on each of the boards, the person who, before leaving the retreat, can sign their name and give the dates. In some of the cabins, the boards go back 20 years. And you can see the kinds of people who have inhabited that space and their spirits actually haunt you, or at least they haunt me, especially when I'm being lazy, because I think, oh my God, you know, Philip Roth was here. I don't think he was wasting his time the way I am. Let me get back to work, you know? So that's the other thing I want to tell you, that the idea that these rooms have these records of who have been the previous inhabitants, and then how their ghosts really linger in the room and influence you, that's another thing that I think is very important. Um, usually the organizers are very cagey about sharing gossip. So a lot of alcohol has to be poured down their throats before they tell you other secrets. But, uh, you know, those are the things I can tell you. And another thing that you mentioned is, you know, about these ghosts of the writer. So that's one thing, um, you know, I noticed that all, almost all of your protagonists are writers, right? They are mm -hmm. very much, um, you know, like you in a way. So I was really curious about why are they so similar to you? You know, what yes. are you actually trying to achieve through them? And, and I would say what kind of influence probably, uh, you know, you've, you've had from uh, reading other writing, Let, let's say yes. other Indian immigrant writing. Yes, yes. You know, um, I think in this day and age, the idea of a book um, not being actually a produced object or a book that does not reveal how it got to be made, uh, for me, it just doesn't sound right. W what I'm trying to say to you is that when you go, in, let's say, into a very bougie, hip cafe, which has uh, some naked brick and some wires hanging in particular ways that shows how it is still a kind of a rough studio space. You are able to imagine it as something that is rather postmodern or something. So that's one way of looking at it, how a book, which sort of makes a deliberate or conscious choice to reveal itself as a made-up object where the writer is also present in the room or on the page, 
um, seems to somehow seem a bit more modern than where you are suddenly like, than a more traditional narrative where you enter a life very removed from that of the writer. I, even though on every page, I have lots of invention. I am utterly in the realm of fiction. I'm making up things all the time. I think I'm very much invested in creating for my reader this intimate relationship with the personality of the writer himself. And I try to do play little tricks, like putting uh, a title of my own older book in it or uh, putting, let's say, giving my narrator the same address as me or using a friend's phone number in one of the books, simply because I think by doing that, I'm trying to make it more real. But more importantly, I'm trying to sort of through a sleight of hand, suggest to the reader that this is all drawn from my own life. Now, your question about what inspires me to do this, one of the main inspirations is actually Jeff Dyer, a friend of mine who's a British writer, who long ago said that he writes only an inch from life, but all the art is in that inch, you know? So how to write things that seem quite uh, close to my own existence, but, but, but I'm inventing everything within that little inch, that seems to be me to be a, a, a real mark of an inventive imagination. Not when I put a fantasy on the page, which is, you know, like... Uh, there are all these Hindu mythologies that come out all the time, for example, in India. And it's it's not that. It's not like I'm thinking, oh, let me imagine a brave warrior and he has got a particular potent weapon in his hand. And when he lets it fly, it beheads all his enemies. No, 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 no. My fantasies, if they are at all fantasies, are all very, very close to life. And yet I try to be as inventive as I can while letting the reader imagine that all of it is really non-fiction. I, I love the way you describe that, you know, like you, you always think of fantasy as sort of like so far removed, uh, but fantasy within sort of realism is a very interesting concept. Michelle? That's what drew me to your work because, because the fact that they are about writers, but also you look at different angles, different, I would say different things that influence a writer, right? Because we usually see very, I would say similar um, journeys that writers follow, very similar patterns. But I think your protagonists give us a very different um, outlook to that. So, you know, talking about realism, uh, Amitabha, you know, in a blue book, uh, which is a very uh, vulnerable journal, which Tara and I absolutely loved. And we heard that it was actually commissioned by Himali Sodhi uh, from a suitable agency. She noticed all your paintings on Facebook and she saw a book in it. And we are really grateful for that because I think, you know, for me, especially because I journal so much, um, one thing I was very curious about, uh, Amitabha, is while writing your journals, right? I'm not talking about uh, the publication of the book. When you're actually writing, um, do you censor yourself anytime? Because at least I know that I do um, sometimes because maybe if it's a dream uh, I, that I remember and I'm ashamed about or maybe it's a feeling that I don't want to admit to, I actually don't end up writing it because I'm just afraid someone will end up reading it. You know, so have you ever encountered uh, the self-censoring process while writing? Uh, yes, but one shouldn't do that. And you are hereby directed not to do it ever again. Um, what you <laughs> yes. should do, what you should do. I have one way to figure that out, really, is something that has started lately, which is that I do following a woman called Julia Cameron, who wrote a book called The Artist's Way. I've started doing morning pages, which is one kind of journal. And then my there is my other journal, which I, uh, you know, I'm noting down. For example, yesterday I met, I'm in London at the moment. I met a Punjabi poet, uh, an old man who was in jail in India for a while. And he was involved in uh, the Naxalite movement. And I was translating you know, I spoke to him. I was taking down notes as he spoke to me. And then in the train, I started translating his poem. So that's in a journal, in a notebook that I have, which I'm keeping during my stay here in London. But in the morning, I have a separate notebook in which I write down whatever I can remember of my dreams and other thoughts that are in my mind. And I, I'm trying to tell you that because I have kept that as a separate thing, which I have made up my mind, I am not even going to look again. One certainly I'm not intended to 
think about it for publication or something. I try to put down things, and this is a new practice for me, starting in November last. I, I've started writing anything that comes to mind, you know? And anyone who's listening us to do something like this, to write the morning pages, because it has many benefits. It unblocks you in good ways. It will make you less, to use your word, self-censoring. It will allow you to be more fluent in your expressions. It will allow you to be more checked. Because to live in fear or to write in fear is not to live or to write at all. Absolutely. And uh, I have this uh, phrase that I call word vomit. So, ah, right, so I right. just, you know, for a first draft of anything, I just like say, okay, you know what, this is my word vomit first draft. And I don't care mm. sort of like what comes out, however bad, I'm not going to judge it. Um, and it actually really helps, like, as you said, because like, you never know, like, what comes out of it. And you never know what kind of thoughts or what kind of meat, then then you can later take and put into something else. So. Exactly, exactly. And and if you keep doing that, you will also discover that you have certain obsessions or you have certain preoccupations, let's call it that, that come to the fore. And then you begin to discern whether in your own conscious mind, and if you really do it well, how in your subconscious mind, there are certain realities that lie at the core of your thoughts and your writings. So by daily practice, and through this practice of daily expression, you will be able to access what are the deeper wounds or the deeper thoughts that lurk in your heart. Right. And that also, that brings me to um, what you had mentioned in the blue book, which I really loved. It was a postcard. When you were 25, you were artistically adrift. Uh, and that endless waiting provided the fodder for writing for the next 25 years. And then you also mm. mentioned that the older you got, uh, the more sort of easy, the more you had to write about and you started and, and somebody who doesn't know what to write about should just start by observing their own life. And for me, that was really interesting because, um, you know, like I've also recently started sort of like writing these personal essays and uh, observing my own life and building narratives out of that itself. And now I find that I have so much more subject material. But what I want to yeah. know is, you know, um, can you expand on how this endless waiting provided the fodder for your writing? Uh, how, you know, what of those years has made its way into your latest novel? When I was a boy, um, the waiting really is a sense of all those wasted years, you know, all those years when I wanted to write in some vague way. And there was this desire to write, but I never really wrote. So all those years in when I was doing my... I mean, I wrote a few poems when I was in my doing my BA, for example. I, uh, had, you know, I fell in love very easily every few days, and that meant new poems, and they were all worthless, I think. But the real purpose of, you know, the real business of writing something that was much more engaged or much more difficult or much more painful, that never took place. You know, one had to wait. I might have, you know. In my 20s, I would start on a novel or something, you know, but never go beyond a few pages. Um, and then I don't know what happened. Maybe started writing those nonfiction pieces. The poetry, actually, I first published a book of poems also in India. And um, perhaps you get a sense of, a certain sense of comfort develops in one form. And then you start having found confidence in one form. You find confidence in writing something longer. And it took a long time, and then the novels began to come. Um, but it has always been useful for me. You know, you, how shall I put it? Once you start writing, really, you uncover so much. Things begin to flow. You, other memories get unlocked. I, 20 years ago, I remember being in a train, and I wrote a line which went something like, uh, the monkeys climbed down from the tamarind tree and left, and... Peeled the oranges left unattended on, on Lotan Mamaji's balcony. And this was a memory that was from my childhood. And somehow it's began, it began, it, it became the opening to a novel called Immigrant Montana. Um, and from there, other memories began to flow about that uncle who was an alcoholic. And I began thinking about what I remembered of him. It's all about writing. It's all about waiting and then being patient enough to keep writing and to keep writing every day. Or if not writing every day, then at least regularly, you know? If someone cannot write every day, let them have every Sunday to write, you know? That every Saturday I'll set aside one hour or two hours or three hours 
Um, and if you can't write a novel, don't worry. Write a short story. If you can't write a short story, write a short essay. If you can't write a short essay, write a write a journal entry, and see where it goes. It, I, I think writing writing really uh, brings alive the time that we are passing and the memories that we have, and gives them shape and produces order out of some chaos. Like I really liked what you said. You know, especially about like the thing that when you write and you contemplate your life becomes so much richer and like you really notice time passing by um mm. and you know like it's sort of like a meditation like i've started doing this where i like just sit with a pen in my hand and paper in front of me and i just like i just put down sort of like thoughts fragments um and i started doing this very recently and then i came across the blue book so for me it was sort of kind of serendipitous uh, yes. to see that um, and it does sort of like give meaning to sort of the humdrum and 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 give theme and add themes into your life and that also reminded me for me you know how a blue book um i would say uh, gave me a, a little insight into my own process is because i doodle and when i doodle it's in a separate book okay and when i journal mm-hmm. it's in a different diary but reading a blue book actually made me think of combining the both because why not right like i mean i just loved the way the text complemented the art and and you know vice versa so i think i'm going to start doing that by joining those two things together you'll be calling on more of your faculties um because um to draw is to observe something and then to uh and that observation uh, that faculty of observation uh which you're using or your eye that you're employing when you're drawing um is very important for writing too and so by putting those by doing those activities together you're, I, I think I think you're um, merging your faculties in interesting ways and therefore the work will be richer. So I think that's the way to yeah. go. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, I think it does make me more visual because I've noticed that the moment I doodle, I, I envision the scene. So it, I think it does add a lot of richness to writing. Uh, but, you know, talking about your childhood, um, yeah. you know, for me, the most interesting scenes in uh, a time outside this time were your uh, childhood scenes uh, spent in Patna. And yeah. one character that really stood out to me was Bridge. Uh, you know mm-hmm. this man who is who is an influence uh, on young Satya, and and we know and we get to learn slowly that this influence might not be um, you know as favorable to Satya as he's growing up, right? It might be mm-hmm. problematic in a way. So I was really curious to know whether you knew someone like Bridge growing up, and and how did you really come up with this character? Yeah, the character of Bridge Bihari uh, was really a combination of. Two people, but um, the appearance was uh, a man whose name might indeed have been Bridge Bihari, or maybe it was Bridge Mohan, I can't remember. But it was a man who did uh, take care of cows in my brother-in-law's house when I was a young man in Patna. Uh, The character or a certain episode that happens, which is a malign episode, is something that happens with a girl who is a maidservant in the house. And I have a definite memory. Again, this is something that had faded from memory but came back to me of a man who was employed in our own house, a different man, not Bridgebone. And um, he was sent back to the village also. And this memory came back and um, that there was something he had done. And, you know, a child's sense of the world is often uh, sensitive, but it does is not necessarily filled with understanding. It only apprehends what has happened or what is bad. Um, and that was my sense of it, that this man with a mustache who used to work in a house had done something wrong. He had made the girl cry and then she had to go back to her village. And my effort then was to present that scene in a way that is a child's way of knowing where enough is revealed for, how shall I put it? The reader then has to know more than what the child narrator knows in order to know what is going on. And the skill of the writer then, if it worked, is in trying to convey with the child's limited understanding the greater horror that the adult knows. Yeah, that's actually like one of the things I love most about um, like fiction for adults written from a child's point of view. That's such an art to that. Yeah. 
yeah and i think yeah. and i think i had seen that in in akhil sharma's um uh, uh, novel i think the the title family escapes life. me yes yes thank you mm-hmm. so in family mm-hmm. life as well because i'm <clears throat> i think writing from a child's point of view is very challenging so i want to also you know um in uh, in so your recent novel it, it explores fake news right and you also uh, write in the blue book uh what can literary fiction do in the face of the fiction that is fake news um mm-hmm. so can you tell us can you answer that question for us and can you also tell us about one fake news that you saw that really triggered you to then sort of like think about this topic yeah well i do not know whether fiction can fight fake news i mean that was the question that i had and i don't think i have an answer for it i feel quite uh, how shall i put it when i read the news of the elections for example when i see the uh, widespread not just the propaganda but the way in which the media parrots the views of the powerful um and where the opposition or the dissenting voices get so little space i don't think that in that crammed house you can hear the cries of the fiction writer you know what i'm saying it is like it fills me with a little bit of despair in my case at or at least in the case of the book a time outside this time um the fake news that really uh, motivated me to start thinking about this whole project was that of the news that was spread from a temple one day in 2015 in dadri about a cow having been killed and beef in the house of mohammed akhlaq something that was never proven and most likely was not even true uh the fact that a piece of news spread from a loudspeaker and then in other cases also spread on whatsapp should lead to the brutal lynching of some of, of a fellow human being um that was the real motivation for me to think about what can you write as i say somewhere in the book what can you write to make someone give a dying man a drink of water for instance you know how do we in the face of fake news what can you craft as a story that will give someone else pause um that was the question i don't know whether i have an answer to it i mean you know um other than the two wonderful people who run books and beyond i don't know how many others have even picked up the novel to read it you know so i don't know <laughs> while 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 an uh, element of fake news is so quickly spread on phones or through gossip or at parties or from loudspeakers and from temples and from mosques it's 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 appalling so i don't know i'm i'm here i'm here to speak for the small voice of literature to just bear testimony sometimes in however faint a voice it can yeah no and and i think that incident that you just mentioned you know uh, brought back a memory so it it very a very horrific scene that i had witnessed so i mean what i mean is i Uh, do not know probably you know the source of the rumor or i don't know probably if it was based on a rumor but then i was just i was traveling by auto rickshaw here in uh, in mumbai and i just saw a mob uh, literally uh, you know um, i would say um, uh, whipping Uh, a rickshaw driver and it was so horrific i could not like i just didn't know how to react and i, and I just yeah. kept thinking so many things like oh my, like was he uh, you know could he have been wrong maybe you yeah. know is it just a mob attack i don't know but it was just so scary and i and i just thought of you know imagine all these you know fake news that's being passed on on whatsapp and people just believe blindly and and do things which is i would say it's very very scary um but yeah. but you know Uh, but but i would say one of the you know light moments um in your book you know though it does talk about very very grim and very serious topics like the pandemic and, and how it affects us you know the lighter moments in the book were about family and and i really love stories which have a domestic um element to it you know uh, so the wife the child they all make experiences so can you tell me um, how your family adds to your writing and maybe you know a fun incident um that happened you know that happened in real life and that actually made its way into the book yes uh you know um my narrator's wife is a behavioral psychologist um 
and her name is Vani, and she knows things like, for example, she knows things like Celine Dion is playing, played on loop in Walmart because sad songs make you want to overcome sadness and then you buy things and that is the psychology that drives the choice to play Celine Dion in Walmart. I don't know whether you know that this is a fact, but this is a fact. Okay? No, that's, that's very is, interesting. <laughs> and, you know, or for that matter, that red and white checkered tablecloths at Pizza Hut psychology tests have shown produces greater hunger than if it had been green and blue uh, tablecloths. Now, um, I was interested in this sort of thing. Unfortunately, my wife, who is very sharp and uh, very progressive, is not a behavioral psychologist. She's an economist. But the economy, the economic writing that she does just doesn't make sense to me in the sense that I'm not smart enough to know it and that vocabulary is something I cannot wrap my hands around, my head around. And so I haven't used that. But I have used other things from the way she... You know, if I or my son or my daughter just share a piece of uh, news, my wife will very quickly subject it to some, you know, ninja-like moves of scientific analysis. And so I basically absorbed that spirit and produced my character in a way or had her act in ways that mimic what I see in my own home. But also my children, you know, I whenever they say some things that I find interesting, I note it down. So, for example, in the novel, the narrator says that at some point he remembers his daughter asking him when she was five or something. They are about to land at an airport and she says, Dad, are we going to get our dental car after this? And, you know, it is true. I had signed up for a rental car. And my child, who was maybe four at that time, she said, are we going to get a dental car? And I quickly took out my notebook and wrote it down. And then, as you see, I have used it in my novel. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> no, it's nice to yeah. see, you know, and I also always wonder, like, you know, like, because people whose parents are writers, um, you know, oftentimes they might see something of themselves in books. So that's also quite funny to think about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just a year or two ago, uh, my, I have a teenage daughter. Well, she's now, yeah, in her late teens. I picked her up at a party and uh, it was late at night. It was Halloween and I picked her up when she was in her last year of high school. I picked her up and I knew something was off or wrong. Um, and very soon she was throwing up in my car and I knew that she had been drinking, but I didn't say anything. The thought that came to me was, and I'm not uh, exaggerating, but this is how you become when you're a writer. I thought, if I was writing this, how would I present this? I, th I had that thought cross my mind. And then a few months passed and my daughter surprised me. She, had a, she wrote a piece which then was published in a, in a, in a publication of the Washington Post. Uh, it was about uh, young people had been asked to write letters to a future self. And that's how she began about throwing up in her father's car. And she said, to the future self, I'll say, you know, she had advice for, you know, how to disguise your drinking or what it was, I can't now remember. But there was, what I'm trying to say to you in response to what you were just saying was that as a writer, you exploit your children's lives. But if you're smart, you will know that your children will have their chance to <laughs> have their vengeance on you and they will put you in their writing. <laughs> Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> I think the roles, roles flip when they change. change. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it, it's so interesting because what you say is like, uh, as a writer, you're always thinking, oh, you know, how will I present this? So there's such a good story. Sometimes, I, I know, Michelle, you do this too. You end up sort of living for the story. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Like everything is material. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, you're like, yeah. oh, like this experience, you know, and all of that. And then I wonder that are you not living in the moment then? But when I think about it, I think that actually you're living even more in the moment, in a way. Exactly. No, I I, I, I agree with you. There is, I mean, I've been asking my students here to keep a journal. But what I'm also telling them to always remember is something that I got from Sally Rooney's latest book, where a woman called Eileen says that when she was, as a, I don't know, she was 21 at that time or 23, um, when she kept this book of life, not only would 
Uh, she noted down some things, a phrase, for example, which would bring back the flavor of the day to her when she read later on. Not only that, but because she knew she would be writing something in her journal, that motivated her to do something that she could then write about. And I think that's a tremendously generative thing to do when the thought of writing makes you live more fully and experience more fully and uh, go in search of a story or a narrative. You know, just because you will not be turning away from life, you'll be going towards life with open hearts and open arms. You know, that embrace of life because you're writing is something that I think is wonderful. Also, um, you know, talking about, you know, all of the uh, different residencies you've been at, right? All of the, you know, wonderful people that you've met. Um, one thing that really stood out to me, uh, I would say, uh, is the fact that, you know, you go to residencies which not only um, get writers together, but people from different backgrounds. And I found that yeah. really interesting. So there was a person who spoke to you about, uh, who spoke to the main protagonist about carbon footprints, right? I mean, and if somebody is probably not um, that aware or not that conscious of climate change, they would become even more, I think, after interacting with with such kind of people. So can you maybe tell me, you know, who was the most fascinating person uh, you have met um, in a residency and, and why? I think the part about the carbon footprint was something I invented, uh, that character, uh, just because I wanted something about China because from because of the discussion later on that would happen inevitably about uh, the virus coming from China. Um, You're quite right to say that um, at these residencies, there are often people from different fields. There had been other writers there before, like, you know, among from India, for example, Kiran Desai had been there, and long ago, Kushwan Singh. In fact, I read somewhere, maybe in an account by Ram Guha, that... Uh, all the villagers in this particular place were very entranced by Kushwan Singh because he used to go swimming every day in that lake and with his long hair streaming, they did not, they were quite fascinated by it. Um, so it, those uh, social scientists didn't interest me, but at other places, what I have uh, been most turned on by are the artists, or at least in the last couple of years. Ever since I myself started doing art or doing drawings, I began to take particular interest in what these folks were doing, just so that I could pick up some things about uh, the craft. And um, when my novel came out, I wrote about one of them. His name is Dushko Petrovich. He's uh, of East European background, but he grew up in Colombia or Ecuador. He grew up in Ecuador. Um, and so his own migrant patterns are interesting. But the, what I wrote about was his art, which is, um, you know, painting but painting from photographs which are in the media and yet producing a little bit of difference so that you become much more acute. It's another way of what I was calling slow jamming the news. And the painting I wrote about was that of migrants who have been arrested at the border. And uh, he has drawn on each face an iPhone sort of a shape so that he is uh, trying to preserve their anonymity. Uh, he doesn't want to expose them the way the state does and at the same time by preserving the rest of their humanity their rather precarious and endangered humanity he's trying to make us see them as people so he would be one there was another one called omid shekhari he was an iranian american and the way in which he would draw figures and the figures often were those who were how shall I put it, demagogues or torturers. It seemed as if the whole troubled history of the state in Iran and the secret police, it was finding expression in each simple drawing he was doing. I thought this is how all the repression and all the violence comes out in art sometimes. And it's a wonderful thing that there is someone who bears witness to it. So those will be two examples. No, I, I, what I really liked about that is, you know, both of them were migrants and I was just thinking about how um, rich a person's experience, because I've even heard an alternate, uh, sorry, an alternate line of thought where they say mm -hmm. that, you know, you end up being confused or you end up having, you know, multiple tongues to deal with and all of that. But I think it just adds to the, you know, just the richness of experience um, so, one can have. Yeah. Um, right. So 
So before we move on to our uh, reading recommendations section, I just have one question because you, you know, while you're a writer, you're an artist, you also teach. And I think that's a very big part of your um, identity. Um, so I, I just want to know, probably, is there um, or was there an experience in your teaching career that actually um, helped you become a better writer? Because for me, at least I have realized that when I talk to other writers or when I probably, you know, dissect a story or, or when I try to really uh, break down a writer's process for someone else, it makes me understand that much better. So is yeah. there is there something like that that's happened to you? The first thing that I noticed when I began teaching writing and, you know, um, was that because I was trying so hard not to teach them something in an abstract way, but only teach something I was doing, I tried, I just became a better writer because, among other things, when I demanded that they write home 50 words every day, I was doing the same. And so I just became a real writer because I was teaching them writing. I was doing the same work. I was trying to do the same reading that I had prescribed, read it carefully. I was trying to apply it in my writing. So I just became a more active writer because I was teaching writing. I thought that was a modest goal for us. And just by myself doing that, because I thought I would not be honest if I was not doing it, that moral pressure on me just, uh, in, in, in fact, yeah, I within a semester, I had produced one short book for David Davidar on Patna that way, and um, that worked well. The other thing that I've learned as a teacher is uh, how your students so often surprise you by what they achieve and what they do. And my students, some of them, not all of them, alas, uh, but some of them have so far exceeded my own expectations and gone ahead to do things that are just so blindingly rich that it's very humbling for me and keeps me, you know, doesn't make me into some sort of a egotistical patriarch because it keeps me alert to uh, the ways in which someone who seems unformed uh, or a novice then within two, three years becomes someone who is unrecognizable. And I'm very proud of that and takes some comfort in the fact that I have taught them something. So those are the two ways I would say that I've learned most. That's fantastic. Yeah, what a great feeling that must be. And also, I totally agree, the more you engage with something, uh, the more you end up actually like participating, the more you end up actually like producing. So let's move to our reading recommendations section. We have a couple of questions for you about book recommendations. What fiction do you like that's written by Indian immigrants in the U.S.? In the U.S.? Well, uh, Akhil Sharma is a friend of mine. I like the brutality of his prose. You know, there's an unflinching sense of honesty, often when writing about things that are difficult, sad. That's particularly true of his first book, The Obedient Father, but it is also true about his second book, Family Affair. Um, Jhumpa Lahiri's um, calm, her composure in English was interesting to me. But her entry into Italian is also not without interest because she tries to understand it in terms of what happened to, let's say, the artist Matisse when he was growing blind and he had trouble with his hands and uh, how he switched from a particular form of painting cutting out shapes of paper and produced a totally different kind of art in those years of decline. Uh, art that still remained so vital and um, very distinctive of his own style. And I think Jhumpa's entry into Italian is a way of inciting us to think how we can shift course and try something new, not with our strengths, but with our limitations. That is something that is a very mature form of producing new work or a very mature way of thinking about new work. And I'm excited about that possibility also. So those are two examples. Yeah, and I think both of them, uh, you know, both Tara and I just love their work because it, it constantly makes us think of new ways um, of storytelling. 
Um, also, I, I really like that you mentioned in the blue book that, you know, when you were a teen, you used to um, pick passages from the books that you were reading and you would write them down in a journal. So I was really curious about which book did you pick the most passages from growing up as a teen? Yeah. You know, recently, well, maybe about a year ago, I picked out all the notebooks. They were still there in my home in Patna. And these were notebooks I had used in Delhi and Patna. Um, but there is something, I don't know about you guys, but in my case, there was something very depressing about returning to that past where there was so much striving, there was so much aspiration, and there was so much, uh, um, I don't know, wandering. I didn't examine them. And I what I did, once I just peeked into it, and then I, there were letters inside, you know, and letters from friends that are not friends anymore, or they have gone so distant, and you wonder what happened. I didn't, somehow it seemed a little, I don't know, it's, it, it seemed like as if I was being sucked into a whirlpool of lost years or something. And so I did not examine it. I sealed it very carefully. I packed it in plastic and thought, maybe in another few years, I will open it. Uh, but what did I, to answer your question more directly, I remember reading a memoir of Sartre called mm, Words, maybe it was the title was, and then and then reading a thin book about Simone de Beauvoir uh, and her relationship with her mother. And I remember noting down, I remember noting down some lines of Saul Bellow that seemed so full of energy. I remember noting down, and how useless was this task of noting down because I never returned to it, but. I obviously spent hours doing it. I remember noting down for length, uh, for pages on, on uh, the postcards that Franz Kafka wrote to his girlfriend. And I think I was trying to uh, imagine myself as someone riddled with existentialist doubt and writing to a woman who was in love with me. Unfortunately, there wasn't anyone, I think. Um, those were the books I can remember. That's interesting. So what is the most, what are some of the most fun books that you've read recently? Um, I did not read it. I heard it on Audible by the Scottish writer Andrew O'Hagan, uh, his book Mayflies, and just that sense of the Scottish English delivered in a Scottish accent was very interesting to me. For the same reason, almost the same reason, I also liked Sally Rooney's Beautiful World, Where Are You? Because it was read by an Irish actor, and that was very interesting. I liked it. There is every Sunday, you know, in the part where I'm living, every, oh, sorry, one Sunday in a month, a writing group goes for a walk on the London Heath. This is what my agent told me. So I have now gone and found that this coming Sunday, they are going to have a walk. They walk for about an hour and a half, and then they return to the bookshop from which you can buy the book. Uh, you should have bought it the previous month. Uh, on a 10% discount. And I'm enjoying it, this book. It is called Territory of Light. It's a thin book by an obscure Japanese writer called Yuko Tsushima. And she has written about being a single mother. And it's a very strange book. And I'm very interested in... It's, it's, it's kind of fun because it has got such um, breaks in it. I just reread The Buddha of Suburbia because my students you know, had arranged with, for Hanif Qureshi to meet them. And this morning I was telling my wife that one of my students in the journal that I have asked them to keep wrote that she did not like him because she says the narrator has an unfiltered mind. And my wife started laughing. But that's the great joy of reading someone like Hanif Qureshi in the Buddha of Suburbia, or for that matter, Upmanu Chatterjee in English August, because it is precisely the unfiltered mind. It's amazing. So that's a very fun book to read. <laughs> no, and I really like the uh, mention of the unfiltered mind because English August is one of my favorite books for that reason. Because you know you are you're always told, especially I think women are told to be cultured, are told to you yes. know not not speak your mind. And of course, though the character is male, I think I loved that unbridled um, um, honesty. Um, yes, but anyway, yes. um, so this brings us to our last round or our last section of the episode, which is our signature rapid fire round, which is okay. um, fun. So you can reply in a line or you can reply in one word. Okay. okay. All right. So teaching or writing? Writing. 
Patna or New York? Patna. 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 <laughs> okay. One line from your own book that you would love to frame. Hmm. What will you write that will make someone give a dying man a drink of water? Wow. <laughs> okay. Journaling or painting? Painting. Because, because dear friends, if you paint every day, that is also, as Picasso says, painting is a way of keeping a diary. So I, in other words, I want to say, I'm not dissing journaling here. I just think that if you paint, <laughs> you're also doing the journaling. True. Yes. Okay. So ants or crows? Crows. Okay. Where do you write? At my table every day. At my desk. Yes. If you had to give one advice to new writers, what would it be? You become a writer, not by publishing, but by writing. And you write by choosing the same hour, the same day. You keep writing every day. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for all your insights, Amitabha. This was just such an interesting episode. Can I just say one thing to you guys? And what I want everyone to know is that you find books at a certain time. It's like meeting someone at a certain time who is right for you, you know, who brings something to your life. And for me, Michael Ondaatje showing me this book by John Berger called Bento's Sketchbook just made me turn towards drawing and think, okay, I'll do it. And that's how Himali saw it. And then this book came around. And I'm hoping that the blue book in that way becomes that kind of stranger who comes into your life. And you just start a new relationship that changes you and changes them. Actually, you know, what you said is so true, because as I mentioned, you know, when I got the blue book, it was like serendipitous because yeah. I had just about sort of started this uh, book. So it definitely is like that for me, at least, and I'm sure it will be for, uh, for other people as well. So thank you. Tara, the whole conversation felt like actually a creative writing class, right? Like, I mean, so many lessons to ponder. And I think he really gets it because he's a creative writing teacher. I think writers struggle with so many problems. And one problem really stands out of that, right? Which is marketing. I think that's something many writers have reached out to us saying that marketing is something they really need help with. So that's why we offer various different kinds of book marketing services for all kinds of books. So if your book is published and you want to reach the right audience, we we are here for you. So, you know, if we love your book, we will get in touch with you and we will do our best to make, you know, the most of it. So you will find more details in our show notes. Don't forget to follow us for more creative content. We are at Bound India on all our social media platforms. Thank you so much for tuning in and we're going to be back next Wednesday with another special and amazing guest. Yep. Bye-bye.